It's hard to segue into <laughs> preaching now. Hebrews is where we are. Every message is going to be entitled by an increment number, and then there's going to be a, a Greek phrase, and it's all Greek to you. So it may or may not, what's going to be fun is it may or may not be relevant to the message, but it will be a phrase, and it will be in Greek. I think last Saturday it was International Greek Language Day or something, which is kind of an unusual thing. We have before us one of the most remarkable documents ever written. And even within the scriptures, it's an extraordinary and unusual document. Hebrews is about divine philanthropy shown humanly. Jesus as the divine and human being is in fact divine love shown humanly. Hebrews lets us see and experience divine love demonstrated and manifested by allowing us to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart as our merciful and faithful high priest and by calling us to intimacy with him and to a participation in his faithfulness. Often too much attention is given to the sober warnings and the fearful warnings in Hebrews 6 and 10, but again, it's all about a divine philanthropy, God's infinite, passionate love, concern, and care for humanity, for human beings. Now, we observed in the last increment that the author of Hebrews uses the present tense. And you should familiarize yourself with the English translation of Hebrews and read it frequently or read parts of it frequently in the verses that I may mention to you because I want you to master this masterpiece and become a living epistle of it. Because ultimately, it isn't just seeing Jesus, but it's the life of Jesus being manifested to be seen in you, in us. And that's desperately required and needed today. Now, we observed in the last increment that the author of Hebrews uses the present tense in describing the sacred duties of the priests of the old order. They were called Levitical priests or priests of the Aaron's order. For example, in Hebrews 9.25, the high priest, present tense, enters into the holy places annually with the blood of another. In Hebrews 10.11, Every priest, meaning of the old order, keeps standing, present tense, they keep standing day after day, rendering his service and rendering offerings over and over again, the same sacrifices which are never able to take away sins. So question, this is the question we posed last time, I'm posing again today, and we're going to have a few Q&A today. 
Does this mean that the priesthood of the old order was still active when Hebrews was written? If so, then the temple was still standing in Jerusalem. The sacrifices had not yet ceased under the old order of sacrifices. More than that, the addressees or the recipients of this epistle may have even been witnessing this ongoing phenomenon. It's almost like a matter of fact. You see these priests offering these offerings every day after day after day, and they don't take away sins. It's almost said as a matter of fact way that the addressees may have watched this occurring. So in attempting to answer this question, we observe that the present tense may also be something that I used to study quite a bit in the New American Standard Bible. It's called the vivid historical present, which means it's not necessarily taking place in the present while the person's writing, but it takes you into the past with a vividness as if the action's taking place in the present, the vivid historical present. So we can't quickly jump to answers like, when was this written and to whom and where? And we have to be very careful about it. But the more we look at it, the more our study becomes very profitable, I think. So it could have been going on. Or it may have been going on in the past and was all over. But whatever the case, and here's where it gets really good, the effect of depicting the action of the high priest of the old order doing his annual duty, presenting the blood of another, of a sacrificial victim, for ceremonial purification. The priests in their daily duties offering sacrifice after sacrifice, which can never take away sins. All that highlights the radical contrast of those ineffectual actions with the unrepeatable action of a high priest whose single and singular offering by which he offered his own body, his own blood, once and for all, and for all time, took away sin. What a contrast. The sacrifice of Christ, a singular one, and a single one, for all people, for all time, is the basis for the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth in him. And that is called, in Hebrews, the deorthosis. Deorthosis. Which means the correction or the making straight. So this sacrifice of Christ, once and for all people, for all time, is the basis for the reconciliation of all things in the heavens and on earth when all times become simultaneous. There are two times when all times become 
simultaneous. One is at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. When one died, all died. And when he returns and the resurrection occurs, all peoples who have lived in all times of histories will be contemporaries. What a remarkable thing that is. That's what Ephesians 1.10 is talking about when it says in the dispensation of the fullness of times to reconcile all things in the heavens and earth in the fullness of times. In the times of the restoration of all things. When Jesus, whom heaven retains now, returns. So this event is called the orthosis or the making straight in Hebrews 9.10 to be exact. Ephesians calls it a recapitulation of everything in Christ. Anakephaliosis. Jesus called it the again Genesis. Palengenesia. The again Genesis. When Genesis happens again and everything's made new for eternal life. That's when he said, you, you guys will be on 12 thrones to his disciples. Administrating over the 12 tribes of Israel. Peter called it the restoration of everything. Apokatastasios panton. So back to the question. This is very helpful for Hebrews. Does the use of the present tense for the action of the high priest of the old order and the priests who offer daily sacrifices indicate that the action was currently going on when Hebrews was written? This starts to answer the question, when was Hebrews written? To whom was it written? And who wrote it? I don't think we're ever going to figure out who exactly wrote it because it doesn't start out like any other epistles. So my answer is we don't know for sure. It seems most natural, though, to give a tentative yes that this action was still going on. The temple was still standing. So the warning has to do with an A.D. 70 trajectory. It just seems natural to picture it that way. And if that's the case, the temple and its glorious complex was still standing. Jerusalem was not yet destroyed. And the myth of the continuing city persisted. We studied that in Revelation, figuring out that Babylon was not Rome, but Jerusalem. And she was saying, I sit as queen. I am not a widow, and I will never experience grief. This is the myth of the continuing city. Rome is the eternal city. Jerusalem is the continuing city. America is the continuing empire. It doesn't happen. There's one continuing city, and it's one to come. And it's called the Jerusalem above, who is the mother of us all, who is free. And that's where true and lasting freedom will be experienced forever. 
Again, if this is the case, then the sober warnings against trampling underfoot the Son of God. And these are stunners. Treating the blood of the covenant which has made one holy as merely ordinary. And insulting the spirit of grace. All of these would be committed by a Christian who was once enlightened, who had tasted the heavenly gift, who had become a companion with the Holy Spirit, who had tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. All of these would be committed by the Christian if they were to actually participate in these actions, if they were ongoing under religious pressure, under social pressure, under political pressure and fear of persecution. Such participation would symbolically re-crucify the Son of God and hold him up to a public contempt. These are all unthinkable things, of course, but possible. So to the question, once again, does the use of the present tense For the action of the high priest and the priests of the old order indicate that that action was currently going on when Hebrews was written. And I have to say right now, we don't know for certain, but it's at least conceivable that it was still going on. Therefore, it's plausible to imagine the letter called Hebrews being sent to enlightened Jewish Christians within the confines of Jerusalem or at least in the vicinity in Judea. There is some affinity then with Paul's epistle to the Galatians in which Paul searingly rebukes ex-pagan Christians who were being tempted to defect from Christ by succumbing to ritual circumcision under pressure applied by certain charismatic Jewish Christian missionaries. And I don't mean charismatics. I mean charismatic with charisma. Paul vents his indignation on these guys more severely than he does the defectors. So in any case, and this is all gear one, I'm going to repeat the conclusion that we reached in increment three on Wednesday. Here it is. Whenever this epistle was written to whomever this sermon in an epistle was originally sent and whoever wrote it. The contrast of this empty, redundant and ineffectual action of priests of the old order with the once and for all and for all time sacrifice of this one high priest a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek who offered one offering to take away sin at the consummation of the ages, who offered one offering and forever took away sin and then sat down. That action is radically contrasted with this action of these priests. So you can imagine this action, whether it who doesn't matter who it was written to or when, we can imagine this action of redundant religious sacrifices that can never take away sin. Forcing people to confess sins that God promised he's already forgotten. And so 
This is the contrast. It's dramatic. It's drastic. Moreover, just as importantly, if not more importantly, the laser focus of this letter is on this one, this son, this Jesus. He who has taken away the sin of the world as the Lamb of God and our great high priest. Because of this, Hebrews is profoundly significant to a 21st century audience. I'll tell you why. Because without a vision of this Lamb of God and his saving significance, God's people in the 21st century are perishing. Remaining under the enslaving control of this age and its influences while making an open and vain profession. So here's the second question. This one's two questions, really. We could call it one twofold question if we're going to talk like Aquinas. And here it is Is the epistle, or sometimes called the letter, to the Hebrews. Why do we call it Hebrews? Is this epistle or letter to the Hebrews properly named? Is it a proper title? And the second part of the question, or a second question, and who are the Hebrews to whom this sermon in a letter is addressed? Nowhere in this letter Does it say to the Hebrews? Never. We don't have an envelope attached to this or that encloses this on which there's an address to the Hebrews from Apollos or from Barnabas or from a student of Paul or from some priestly believer. We don't have a stamped addressed envelope. In fact, Nowhere in this letter does it say to the Hebrews, as Paul's letter to the Corinthians says. His first Corinthian letter says this, to God's church at Corinth. Now, that's pretty clear. Who was it written to? Saints in Corinth, believers in Corinth. Or the epistle to the Philippians, where Paul says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, in Macedonia, including the overseers and deacons. Instead, Hebrews opens with, in many and various ways, long ago, God, who spoke to the fathers provisionally in the prophets, in these last days has spoken to us definitively in a son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the universe, who is the visible radiance of of God's glory and the precise self-representation of his reality who upholds the universe and carries everything that happens in it through the course of all time toward a redemptive objective who has made purification for sins who has 
sat down at the highest height at the right hand of the eternal majesty. What an opening. That opening contains the whole essence of the epistle. The rest of the epistle, all the way through 1322, is a fanning out, 1324, actually, if I remember right. So how did this epistle get the title, the epistle to the Hebrews, or the short name, we know it as Hebrews? After studying quite a bit on this, and I'm pretty much, that's all I'm reading, Hebrews commentaries and theology books, etc., We know that this title didn't appear in writings until the second century. It wasn't even called Hebrews or the epistle to the Hebrews until we see it in the second century. So I want to propose an answer that we are Hebrews. We are the Hebrews. Let me explain. I'm going to use a segment from Easton Bible Dictionary. That's E-A-S-T-O-N. It's on my Bible Works 7 app. And I guess you call it an app. I don't know what it is. All I know is my name's an app, and here's an app. But the Easton Bible Dictionary, I don't have to, but I will anyways, it's because it's in public domain. It doesn't mean you have to, it means you don't have to give all the information about it. But it was written by M.G. Easton, E-A-S-T-O-N, who had a bunch of degrees next to his name, and it's now in public domain. And I happen to notice this little section, and it's pretty remarkable. He makes the point in installment 1707, you can imagine how many installments are in this dictionary, that the word Hebrew is a name applied to the Israelites in Scripture in three ways, he says. First, it is used only by one who is a foreigner. In other words, calling these people Hebrews is only used by people who are foreigners, and they are therefore foreigners to them. So first, it's used by one who is a foreigner, Genesis 39, 14, and 17, and Genesis 41, 12. You actually have that word Hebrews. Secondly, he says, it is used by the Israelites when they speak of themselves Two foreigners. And that's like Genesis 40 and verse 15, Exodus 119. And then thirdly, he says, when spoken of as contrasted with other peoples, Hebrews, Genesis 43, 32, Exodus 1, 3, 1, 7, 1, 15, Deuteronomy 15:12. Now Easton helpfully gives us a derivation of the word Hebrew. He notes first the name is derived according to some from Eber or Eber or Eber. I just noticed that that's my mother's maiden name, Eberly. Eberly was her name. I must be a Hebrew. Um Let me savor this for a little while, and I'll get back to you. From Eber, or Eber, Genesis 10.24. And he was the ancestor of Abraham. 
So the Hebrews are originally called sons of Eber. And so Jack Eberly, I never met him, my mom's dad. He left this world when he was only 60. Eber. So sons of Eber. Unlike his real sons, one is still around, my Uncle Al, and two became famous singers. And I could have been there. You haven't heard me singing back here. It's astonishing. Victoria knows. One with Glenn Miller and one with Jimmy Dorsey. Bob and Ray, not the Everly brothers. Don't say that. The Everly? No, not the Everly brothers. Wake up, little Susie. What's wrong with you? Now, uh, so this latter view is preferred. to. So in other words, the sons of Eber, Genesis 10:21, And then Easton says, others trace the name of a Hebrew word, root word meaning to pass over. So it means one who has passed over. And hence regarded as meaning the man who passed over. For example, the Euphrates River. You've heard the man from Snowy River. Well, here's the man from the Euphrates. He passed over from the Euphrates River. Or to the Hebrew word meaning the region or the country beyond. So to Easton, he says this. This latter view is preferred. It is more probable origin of the description given to Abraham coming among the Canaanites as a man from beyond the river Euphrates. Uh, He's the man beyond the river. None of us have ventured beyond that river Euphrates. He's the man from beyond the river. Genesis 14, 13. And that's right before he meets a gentleman named Melchizedek, the king of Salem, which is short for Jerusalem, and a type of Jesus Christ, king of righteousness, king of peace. But then Easton brings our attention to a third derivation, namely that it's from the word Abhar, A-B-H-A-R, Abhar. Abhar. Then from that we get Ebhar or Ebher. We're starting to get a word that looks like Hebrew or Hebrews. From Abhar, hence we get, he says, Ebher. So we're getting kind of like Scrabble, but sort of a thing that looks like a Hebrew. And Ebher means a sojourner or someone passing through, someone staying temporarily, but you can tell they're on the way somewhere else. Like Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they said he made as if he was going somewhere else. He was always on his way. In fact, Jesus is the ultimate Hebrew. He's the ultimate one from beyond the river who's headed back somewhere. And not only headed there himself, he's our forerunner, our pioneer, our leader, our captain. So following him isn't drifting. 
We may be wandering in this world, but we're not drifting because we're following a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night if we are believers under doctrine, buds, believers under doctrine, teaching, biblical teaching. And so sojourner, passer through, as distinct from a settler in the land, and thus it applies to the condition of Abraham. And so he then offers Hebrews 13 as an illustration. This is where I take up the strand to say, is this really a well-named book or epistle? Luke 11.13 is where we'll pick up then in a minute. But first, who are the Hebrews to whom this sermon in a letter is addressed? Again, the sense of passer through as distinct from settler or one with a settled residence applies, I think, best. Abraham was indeed descended from Eber, E-B-E-R, or Eber, Eber. And you can find this in a genealogy in Luke chapter 3, verses 34 and 35. It documents Abraham, the son of Terah, it says. That's his father. His grandfather, Nahor, is listed then. And his great grandfather Serug or S-E-R-U-G and then his great great grandfather Reu R-E-U where we get Reuben ultimately and then we get makes me think of a Reuben those are really never mind then Peleg and then six generations back Eber so Abraham is the son of Eber he is therefore a Hebrew. Abraham has many children. Abraham was one of the six, was of the sixth generation from Eber, whose name, in fact, means region beyond Eber's name. So in that sense, all the children of descendants of Abraham are also descendants of Eber. All of us are. Because I will bless all the nations in your seed, Abraham. And the seed is singular, and the seed is Christ, and all will be made alive in him. So in that sense, all the children of or descendants of Abraham, Abram, are descendants of Eber or Eber. So in the sense of the name region beyond, that connotes a country of origin that's not familiar to those among whom this person lives or among whom one is merely temporarily, temporarily living, but is clearly minded to move on. So the region beyond is not only where a person came from, but also describes where they're going. They are, in the words of the old-timers, wayfarers. And they became sunglasses. So, in fact, man, see, I still got one foot in this world. You might notice that. It's just, uh, there is a, I'm intrigued by this. I don't know if I'll ever get it because I've got about 5,000 pages I have to read so far in Hebrews. But there's a one by Ernst Kosemann, the famous German theologian who is one of Moltmann's mentors. 
And his commentary on Hebrews was entitled The Wandering People of God. So I think he got the point that we could say the epistle to the wandering people of God. Because we're in this age, we're born from above, we're born from a country above. We're born from above and we're on the way to a city or a country. And so we never really settle down here. Not, not in this world. Now we never really settle down here. We are inundated every day for the better or the worse with the concept of immigrants and immigration and the debate of immigrants and immigration. And we, most of us in America have immigrants as parents or grandparents or great grandparents So immigration is huge, but it's pretty big in Hebrews, too. Only it's not an immigrant or a migrant or a resident alien in America or Canada, but in this world, on this earth. And so I always have this sense, I don't know if you do, I have this homesickness that this isn't really home, this isn't really finally home. And so we have a homesickness for a home we've never been to, but we got a feeling it's there. We, we, we know, in fact, from the promises of God that it's there. So we, if we, we're a little bit homesick, we never get too settled on this planet, in this world, and with the affairs of this world. We're aware of them. We're not stupid. We're alert. We know the news, breaking news. And this is breaking news. This is the news that breaks the hold of the cosmic system on people. This is the real breaking news called the gospel. And this sense overwhelms us sometimes. It's it's an emotion. It's a feeling. Nothing wrong with those. And we can't define it sometimes. And if we just let it go, it can become kind of a depression. But if we understand it's not really depression, it's we don't ultimately belong here. This isn't. Here we have no continuing existence, no continuing city. This isn't all there is, so roll out the barrel. And the best it's ever going to get isn't Miller High Life and cracked blue crab on a beach either, as I used to say. And so... The region beyond is not merely where such a person came from, but it describes where they're going. Cosman eventually, well, he evidently had laid a pretty heavy emphasis on those to whom this epistle was addressed as the wandering people of God, likening us and those who received this epistle to the wandering Israelites in the desert on the way to the promised land. Hopefully, we won't wander aimlessly. So in Hebrews 11.13, we have a partial summary of a catalog of elders in verses 8 through 12. Namely, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob, who like Abel, Enoch, and Noah in 11.4 through 7 of Hebrews, were testified of as having faith as the substance of hoped for things. And that was really the mainspring of their life and living. They had faith as the substance of the hoped for things. 
and the evidence of unseen realities, who had the assurance of hope in the promises of God, who had the conviction not only that God exists, but that he rewards those who diligently seek him with the prize of finding him. I used to think he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then I, I asked, what does he reward us with? Finding him. Hebrews 11, it's in there somewhere. So here it is. Hebrews eleven thirteen. All these people, meaning Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, and Jacob from nine up to this point, died in faith. Now, I've seen this happen now 41 years here under the deadline of constantly preaching. I've seen probably 30 to 40% of tetelestai, tetelestai phalanx graduate into that country. Move into that country, past that river, go into the presence of the Lord. And you know what they did? They believed these promises until they died. That's a remarkable thing. And so it says all these people died in faith. Not receiving the fulfillments of those promises, but they saw them far away. How did they see them far away? Because as it said, Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. They saw Jesus far away. They saluted them. They saluted those promises. And they confessed, notice this, that they are strangers and exiles on the earth. I'll give you a hint. Today's title is Xenoi or Xenoi, strangers, where we get the word xenophobia, fear of strangers. Lots of people have that, I guess. Xenoi, Xenoi, Kai, Par Epidemoi, Par Epidemoi. I'll say it looks like this. These, this is going to be key to our understanding of what Hebrews is. Par, P-A-R, E-P-I. I'm writing in Greek now. D-E-M-O-I. Par, Epi, Demoi. The word Democrat comes from this. Demoi, the people. Par, Epi, Demoi. Zenoi is also used to describe these people. Zenoi, strangers, strangers and exiles in the earth, par epidemos, exiles. The NLT, the New Living Translation, which I find a lot of respect for, says all these people died still believing what God had promised them. That would be my pastoral goal for you, that you'd, Die in faith that you'd believe up until the last moment of your life. All these people. Par epidemos, according to Joseph Thayer's lexicon, incidentally, the complete Jewish Bible said, all these people kept on trusting until they died. Another good rendering. Lexicon says par epidemoi means one, or demos, the singular, means one who comes from a foreign country into a city or land to reside there 
by the side of the natives, hence stranger sojourning in a strange place or a foreigner. He says that in the New Testament, its use is metaphorical in reference to heaven as the native country. One who sojourns on earth. So of Christians, he cites 1 Peter 1.1 where we see the same word. And as a prime reference also in 1 Peter 2.11, as a verse in which the term is joined to par oikoi, meaning dwellers alongside. And so... Thayer also cites Hebrews 11.13, our passage today, our central passage, noting par epidemoi's description of the patriarch. So in Genesis 23.4, we have a record of Abraham. It says they actually confessed that they were strangers, immigrants, migrants. But not just immigrants. An immigrant means someone who comes to stay. This is something different. This is someone who's here for a while but passing through. Abraham confessed his status as a par epidemos in the Genesis 23:14. He was in the land of the Hittites. He said this, quote, I am a resident alien and a visiting stranger among you. This status did not apply only to the patriarchs, however. David wrote a Psalm 39. And he sang this prayer. Listen to my prayer, Lord. And be attentive to my cry. Don't silently ignore my tears. Because with you, I am a resident alien. Par epidemos, or par oikos in this case. A resident alien. A temporary visitor. Par epidemos. Just like all my fathers. So... Please note that they were strangers and exiles, not in England, not in Canada or the USA. They were strangers and foreigners on the earth. The implication is that they were, in fact, citizens of heaven. Now, I've used this word exiles. There's a lot of good words for it, but I use the word exiles because this, too, suffices as a meaning of par epidemoi. In 2 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul says when in, in his own tears as a homesick man he says quote while we are at home en de mayo in the body we are in a strange land away from ek domeo the lord it is attention grabbing then that david says to yahweh the lord he says with you i'm a stranger in the earth While we're strangers, while we have that homesickness, he's with us and he never leaves us nor forsakes us. Not for a second, not ever, not for any reason, whatever. With you, I'm a resident alien, par oikos. You'll see this in print as the first three are already in print and at the table. A temporary visitor, par epidemos, just like all my father's. They were with you too. Yahweh, the Lord God himself, is a stranger and a temporary visitor in this world, on this present earth, in this present age. Somewhere someone wrote, in their suffering, meaning Israel's, he suffered. 
And in Jeremiah 14, 8, I'll give that one away. The prophet asked the Lord with irony. He's mad. He's halfway, halfway through, or half of the times, Jeremiah's mad at God about something or other. And I can relate to it because I've had a few days where I said, you tricked me into the ministry. You never told me there'd be days like this. Times like this. Bizarre trials like this. Come on. You never told me. But he did. He knows what we're he knows we're going to go through stuff and tells us and intimates it to us. Jeremiah says with irony, hope of Israel. That's what he named God. Hope of Israel. That's what Paul named him in First Timothy one one, Christ Jesus, the hope, our hope. He said, Hey, hope of Israel. It's Savior in time of distress. That's what you are. He said, why are you like an alien in the land? Like a traveler stopping only for the night. That's ironic. Because on the road to Emmaus, the disciple named Cleopas, C-L-E-O-P-A-S, ironically asked the risen Christ, who is our hope, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened here in the past few days? (laughs) Are you the only? Now, there's a million visitors coming through Jerusalem lately. You must be the only one that's a stranger and a visitor here that doesn't know what the hell just happened. We thought this man was our Messiah. You don't understand. We gave up everything to follow him. We committed our souls to him we entrusted our spirit to him we gave our bodies to him we gave all that we owned to him to follow him and they went and crucified him don't you get it we have a reason here to be extremely sad and tearful on this road so stop bugging us and of course that was extremely ironic but it wasn't too ironic because the lord is indeed a stranger and a visitor on this earth with us. So, that's in Luke. (laughs) Indeed, the Lord was a temporary visitor in Jerusalem, in the city that was at the time believing that it would continue forever. The one they crucified outside the city gate was going to continue forever, but not that city. Don't live in the myth of the continuing city. Instead, let us go outside the camp, bearing his reproach. Moses did it. He had all the wealth of Egypt, all the fame, all the pleasures. But he considered the reproach of Christ as greater riches. He sure went outside the camp. Egypt, Jerusalem, Sodom, Babylon. What's the difference? None. So then, as we close, here's an important part of Hebrews. By his incarnation, Jesus became a temporary visitor in this world on this earth. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus was on the way, even as he walked with them in Emmaus. As he made to go on further, they had no idea. He was entering in to the coming age, to a region beyond beyond the veil as our forerunner. 
He was a wayfarer. So by his resurrection from the dead, he was on the way to glorification in the next world, in the coming age, where he is now. His disciples on the road to Emmaus were speaking with him, and he with them as he was on his way, not to another town, but to the Father, to the future. Where is he now? In the future. When he comes, he comes from the future to us, to the age to come. He's where he's gone. As another place in Hebrews says, to a region beyond the veil, Jesus, our forerunner, the leader of our salvation. So if faith in Jesus has been awakened in us, then we've been born from above. We have originated from somewhere else. We're not from around here. We're going somewhere else. We've been called to belong to Jesus Christ. And here's the painful part. We've been called out, but we're not all the way in to where we're going. We've been called out. That's why we are aptly compared in some regards to the wandering Israelites who had been freed from the slavery of Egypt but weren't yet in the promised land. A lot of them dropped in the wilderness. Now, if faith in Jesus has been awakened in you, then you've been born from above. We've originated from somewhere else, and we're going there. We've been called to belong to him in Romans 1.6. We've been called out of this world, but we're not yet where we're going. It hurts a little bit. The sufferings of this present time, you see, the agona, called out, but not yet in all the way. We're like Abraham, the son of Eber, a Hebrew of whom it is written, by faith, piste, just like Rahab, by faith, piste. He lived as a migrant, a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, joint heirs of the same promise. When Peter wrote to the par epidemois, who were scattered like seed in the Roman provinces of Turkey, He wasn't writing to the patriarchs. Those weren't the only sons of Eber. He was writing to an audience of Christian believers in Western Asia Minor who were his contemporaries. We too have believed in Jesus. We too live by faith and walk by faith and not by sight. We too are wanderers in the wilderness of this world, not drifters. For drifters don't know where they're going and don't really care. We're wandering people of God, but we're following a pillar of cloud by night and a pillar of fire, or pillar of cloud by day, rather, a pillar of fire by night. Because we're continuing in the word and we're letting the word of Christ 
And indeed, the word, not only the word of Christ, but Christ himself reside in our hearts at home. Not as a stranger, but as one at home. Ephesians 3.17, I'll give that one away. We are strangers and wayfarers with him and he with us. So I'll close by saying this as an answer. Don't ask any longer who these Hebrews are. They are us. We are the 21st century recipients of this aptly named letter to the Hebrews. Just like the initial recipients in the first century. The resounding theme is still exactly the same. We, like they, see Jesus. Thank you, Father, for this another opportunity for breaking news, for the news that breaks the hold of this age, for the news that informs us that our homesickness and that our tears in this world are not wasted but kept in vials, kept in the record book of heaven, where it shows that our faith, our hope, and our love are demonstrations of having seen Jesus. We thank you, Father, for as commentators have said, this is a fearful epistle. I beg to differ. In fact, I emphatically differ. For we see Jesus here as the human and divine expression of your passionate philanthropy for all of humankind. May we truly see him increment by increment, little by little, and may we grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory both now and to the ages, for he is a priest to the ages after the order of Melchizedek. All right, 